Amen and good morning. Glad you're here with us, whether you're here in person or online. Thank you for the gift of your presence. That's meaningful. We're glad you're here. Um, I'll be honest with you, I love studying the Bible. I, at, like at worst, it's interesting, and at best, it's transformational to your life, right? So I like, just think it's pretty cool that I uh, found a job where I get to do that as a part of my job. And, uh, but sometimes I am studying something in Scripture, and I'm sure you have these moments, I have them too, where I'm like, why is that there? I don't get it. I mean, I understand what it's saying. Like, why would it be included for, so, for us to read thousands of years after the fact? Uh, we're going to look at Obadiah today. That is one of those books for me. The book of Obadiah. I'm like, why is that there? It's pretty obscure. I'll be honest. Like, I was thinking about this. I can't prove it, but I'm sure I'm right. If you were to survey every believer on the planet, so all like 2.5 billion of us, 2.5 and growing, and ask all of us, what is your favorite book of the Bible? Not one person would say Obadiah. (laughs) Not one. Uh, out of curiosity, how many of you have ever heard a sermon out of the book of Obadiah, Reza Mapai? Anyone? None of us. There were two in the first service who have heard a sermon out of Obadiah. Uh, and I will tell you this. This sermon that I am about to preach is the first sermon I've ever heard out of the book of Obadiah, right? So I'm going to do my best, but let's have some reasonable expectations, people. <laughs> it's Obadiah. It's pretty obscure. Let me... Uh, Remind us where we find ourselves. We've been looking at the Minor Prophets. We have three more weeks of that before Lent begins. We're going to take a little bit of a break uh, for Lent, and we're going to come back after Easter and finish up the Minor Prophets. I want you to remember this. Minor Prophets, we divide them into three sections of time. The first is the Assyrian period. The period of prophecy starts with really the kingdom splitting into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the Assyrian period is during that time. It ends when the Assyrian empire comes by and wipes out the northern kingdom and they go south and they almost do the same thing to the southern kingdom. But King Hezekiah makes a deal with the Assyrians and so they survive. And that's the end of the first period of prophecy. The second period of prophecy is called the Babylonian period. Babylon becomes the empire of the day and it's just the southern kingdom that is surviving at that point. And all the prophets prophesied during that season of time, ending really with Obadiah, which we're going to talk about in a second. But that time ends when the Babylonian Empire comes to Jerusalem and wipes everybody out and hauls a whole bunch of people and all of their valuables back to Babylon. And that's the end of the Babylonian period. The last one is the post-exilic period of prophecy. We're going to wait till after Easter, but we're going to get back to that and look at it. Um, So today with Obadiah, we end the Babylonian period. Next two weeks, we're going to look at the prophet Joel. Nobody's really sure where Joel fits in kind of those three periods. So we just stuck him right there at the end of the Babylonian period. Now, my hope is this. As we've been doing it, that one of the fringe benefits is I hope that we're starting to see maybe how the Old Testament fits together a little bit. And uh, like, it's easy to come across the, the minor prophets and just think, well, here's 
you know, 12 random angry dudes. I, you know, I, they're just yelling at people. Uh, but really, what they're doing is very embedded in the moment that they are living in, right? It's connected to the national events and the political climate of the day. And so we have to, in order to properly interpret the minor prophets, we have to have a basic understanding of the background of history that like, is the foundation of the writing that they're doing because they were writing to their times. They're speaking to real situations and they're speaking about things that were happening. That begs the question, like, how do we take the prophets and apply them to our times? A few of you have asked this, and I've wondered from time to time, uh, like these warnings and the teachings of the prophets, do you think that these words from the prophets would apply like to our nation? Like, are they just general words that apply to nations everywhere? It's an interesting question, isn't it? It's one we could debate probably for hours. We won't, but we could. Um, I'm sure you've heard this, like I'm sure that you've heard people shouting about uh, moral decline in America, right? And from time to time, they might grab a verse out of the prophets and throw it at us as like a warning of look at what happens when we let our morals slip. The question is, are those warnings to the nation of Israel warnings for our nation? Like, is that a fair interpretation, to interpret them as warnings that one day God would judge America if we do the same things? Interesting question. I want to encourage you. Uh, you can answer that question for yourself. You're going to have to dig in a little bit. You're going to have to study it. The imagery is tricky, so you've got to read some Hebrew scholars. You've got to read some theologians uh, to really understand the times. You're going to have to think about some things like, should we use a dispensational lens or a covenantal lens? And those are real fancy words, but the concepts are very simple. And spoiler alert, use the covenantal lens. But aside from that sort of stuff, like you can really understand this, and you can answer that question for yourself. Do they apply to our country? I want to suggest two things that, as I've thought about this, just stand out to me. First, we have to recognize this when we're asking that interpretive question. The primary message of the prophets is about idolatry and injustice, right? We've seen that again and again and again. They're talking about idolatry. They're talking about injustice. And while those are moral issues, I'm sure that you recognize that most of the people who are shouting about moral decline in our country, they're not really talking about those two issues. In fact, in most cases, what they're talking about is sexual morality. Now, that is not a major topic of the prophets. There's a handful of times where the prophets are going to address issues of sexuality, but it is connected to the nature of idol worship and the sexuality that was involved in worshiping certain idols. And so when you survey the entirety of the prophets and you ask the question of what if this applies to us, we have to recognize this truth. The overwhelming message of the prophets, the thing that rises to the surface, is really that we should love God and worship him only and not worship idols, and that we should love our neighbors ourselves and not practice injustice. So love God, worship him only, love our neighbors ourselves. That's what you'd expect them to say. As I recall, there was someone pretty famous who said something about those two things being really important. It was Jesus. So if the prophets were speaking to us today in our country, and if we wanted to apply them to our country, I think we'd have to acknowledge that the primary things that they would say to us would be related to the ways that we've replaced God in our lives and the ways that we are unloving to people made in God's image. 
because that was the primary thing that they said to the people in their day, okay? Here's the other thing that I think we have to remember when we're applying them forward into our day. The prophets were speaking to a nation that was a theocracy turned into a theocratic monarchy. Now, I know those kind of big words, very simple concept. What it means is that the government of the nation of Israel was set up to be guided directly by God. That was the idea behind their government. And so even when they had a king, which God was initially against, then people are like, but we really want one. And God says, well, fine, I will give you a king. But it's going to be someone that I choose, someone that I anoint. And that king is supposed to be listening to me for direction for the nation, right? That is how God set it up. And he also set up priests and he set up prophets. Those were official positions, God-ordained roles that were provided to inform the king, to check the power of the king. And the way it was supposed to work is the king was supposed to listen to God through these people. Now, it failed a lot. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, it failed more than it ever worked. But that was the way it was supposed to set up, or it was supposed to work. Um, When we read the prophets, like, we have to recognize this. What we're not reading is like someone's blog that they started about how the government is mishandling things, right? This is the, the prophets, it's not like their Facebook feed of here's issue X and here's what I think the government should be doing. What we're hearing is a divinely inspired and anointed, meaning God chose them for this position, message to the people that God had chosen to lead, to lead his people. Right? So that's what it is. And so if we take this concept of the prophets speaking to power, which certainly they were, and we just drop it into our context of America, I'm not sure it works outside of the context of a theocratic monarchy where the religious and, and political leaders said, our job is to hear directly from God. I'm not sure it works in the exact same way outside of that context. In fact, uh, if you look scripturally, after the age of the prophets ends, it never works that way again. God doesn't send prophets. In fact, Rome was the governmental power of the day in the New Testament, for instance. And outside of maybe a couple of instances in the book of Revelation, the early Christians said very little about Rome's rampant idolatry and injustice. They almost never spoke truth to power in that way. And you will see moments in the New Testament where Jesus and Paul speak truth to like the the power in Israel, the, the religious leaders there. But we also need to understand that still is in the context of a theocratic system where those religious leaders were supposed to be listening to God. So in our context, in the United States, we are obviously not a theocracy, right? We're a constitutional republic. Our constitution very wisely separates those things, political power, religious power. That's a good thing. Like our political leaders would be very suspicious if they did this, but they don't stand up in front of a microphone and say, I heard a message from God, here's what we're gonna do, right? Like that would bother us very much and rightly so. And so this is just my opinion. You can disagree with this as you study it. I'd love to hear what you think. But if the prophets were writing today, and if we were gonna drag what they say forward into our context, I don't think their writings would be primarily aimed at those with political power. I think their warnings would be focused on the church. So I don't think they'd be writing to the United States or the country of the United States, right? I think they would be writing to the global church, God's people international. And so the the prophets were primarily concerned with that. Uh, And I think these days they would also be concerned with that. They spoke to the people who were supposed to be listening to God. That was the nature of the prophets. 
And they said very little to people who were not under that umbrella of a covenantal relationship with God. There's only two instances of the prophet speaking to someone outside of God's people. One is the book of Jonah, where God gives Jonah a message for the Assyrians. And while that is an instance where that happened, we have to recognize this about the book of Jonah. It was not written to the Assyrians. The book of Jonah was written to God's people, right, about something that happened with the Assyrians. The other instance is the book of Nahum, which we looked at earlier this year. Uh, Nahum is a prophecy against the Assyrians, but again, it's not like written to the Assyrians. It's written to God's people about the Assyrians. And there's only one other instance in all of the prophets where the, the message is not directly written to the descendants of Jacob. That's Obadiah. This is the other instance. Obadiah is written not to the descendants of Jacob, but to the descendants of Esau, who is Jacob's brother. Uh, Esau's descendants, they were, it was the nation of Edom. It was the Edomites. So find your way to Obadiah. Let's look at this other instance. Uh, you may know a little bit of the history of this. Abraham, patriarch of the nation of Israel. He's also the patriarch of the Arab nations. But with his wife, Sarah, he has a son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's name is eventually changed to Israel. This is where the nation of Israel gets their name. It's from Jacob. And the promise of God flows through the lineage of Jacob, even though he is the younger son. But his brother Esau also was the father of a nation. He was a father of the nation of Edom. And there's a little bit of promises connected to these people. If you uh, picture Israel on a map, so Israel is here like south and east of it. All right, I'm doing this backwards. So Israel's there. South and east of it is uh, where the nation of Edom was located. It's in what is modern day Jordan. Um, if you're familiar, are you familiar with the city of Petra? Um, it was famously in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, that city like in the canyon thing there. Uh, Petra is like where the capital of Edom was. Um, so the promise of God comes through Israel, through Jacob. Jesus is a direct descendant of Jacob. What's interesting is in Jesus' day, the, the family of Herod is a direct descendant of Esau. So the, the Herods were Edomites. That's uh, their nationality. And so there's a lot of history between these groups that plays out into scripture. And just like their ancestors, Jacob and Esau, had a lot of conflict, the Israelites and the Edomites have a lot of conflict through the years. Their sibling rivalry uh, that Jacob and Esau had became a national rivalry between these two countries. So Obadiah is a book written to the nation of Edom. They're outside of the nation of Israel proper, but they're still connected to the people of God by a common ancestors. Just one chapter is a message of judgment against Edom. Here's what Obadiah says. Verse one, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. So this is not going to be good news for Edom. Um, God's basically saying, listen, your time is up. Your nation is going to fall. And the reason that it's going to fall is because once again, they have invaded Jerusalem. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that happened from time to time. There's at least six instances that we know of in the Old Testament. And there's some debate over when is Obadiah really writing. There's 13 different Obadiahs in the, in the Old Testament. So it, we're looking at it right after Habakkuk because one of the notable things Habakkuk writes, then Nebuchadnezzar comes and invades Jerusalem and hauls a whole bunch of people off. Do you know who helped Nebuchadnezzar? 
Edom, the Edomites, they helped him. And then after he hauled a whole bunch of people off into exile, the Edomites show up to Jerusalem and basically rob them. They basically invade the city and take what is not tied down and Jerusalem is too weak to defend itself. So they're kicking Jerusalem while it's down. Uh, We don't know for sure when Obadiah is written, but it makes the most sense to me that it's written at some point after that time where God is saying, hey, I saw you do that. I was not pleased and the same thing is gonna happen to you. Here's his message to Edom. Verse 10, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. So Nebuchadnezzar shows up, he invades, he conquers Jerusalem, he destroys it, he takes all their valuables, all their people back to Babylon, and meanwhile, Edom is saying, good, ha, they deserve it. That's what I was hoping would happen. And then they attack, verse 13. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads and cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. So they gloat, they laugh, they say, good. They say, now's our chance. They march to Jerusalem and they rob them. And God says, well, because of this, because of this moment, Uh, the same thing's going to happen to you. And it did. 553 BC, the Nabataean Arabs invade Edom, conquer it, and basically take over all of their cities. The city of Petra is built where we think the capital of Edom was. Um, So that, that is exactly what happened. Here's a picture of my wife. She's doing a headstand on the edge of the canyon uh, that contains the ruins of Petra. Now, This picture doesn't have anything to do with the sermon, but if you have a picture of your wife doing a headstand on the ruin or on the canyon that contains the ruins of Petra, when else are you going to show it, right? You bring it out now, don't you? Yeah. (laughs) You can kind of see, like, this is the area that the Edomites lived. Um, And it was kind of contained, and there was high canyon walls and impenetrable, they thought. And that explains really what God points out here in verse 3. God says to them, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So they're in their mountainous capital, their fortress secure, thinking no one can touch us. And in that context, Pride takes over in their heart. And ultimately, that's what God's condemning in them. So, that's the book of Obadiah. I mean, that's the crux of it. There's a few other things in there, but that's kind of what it's about. Um, It's a book that predicts judgment over this neighbor of Israel because of their pride, because they mistreated those in Jerusalem. Does this mean anything to us? 
What do we take out of a book like this? How do we apply this correctly to our lives and to our times? You know, a great principle of biblical interpretation to start with uh, comes from the book, How Not to Read the Bible. We have that book out at the bookstore out there. Great book with lots of principles of interpretive, uh, just how do we make sense of what the Bible says? One of the things that the author says is this, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. This is really important when we are interpreting scripture, that we understand the difference of something being written for us, for our benefit, as opposed to being written to us, to our situation. We shouldn't just pick up verses and plop them down in our situation as if God was writing it specifically to us, because in most cases, he was not. For example, I think it would be bad biblical interpretation at this point to take the book of Obadiah, pick it up, and drop it into our country and say, this instructs us about U.S. foreign policy. Right? I don't think that's what it actually is doing. It wasn't written to us. There might be some principles we would glean from it, but it's not written to us. It is written, actually, about Edomite foreign policy. Right? It was a foreign policy decision that Edomites made that God is holding them accountable to. And we have to understand the reason why God would even speak to this at all. Why would he speak to the nation of Edom? A lot of nations mistreated Israel in these days. Why are they the ones who get this book? Well, that is totally connected to the relationship between Jacob and Esau, right? They were brothers, and so in a sense, like these nations were cousins. They, they were related somehow. And they're very different, but they share this connection to the promises of God and this common ancestor. And so I think really even this book, even though it's outside of what we would typically think of as the nation of Israel, I still think somehow God is writing to people that he identifies as his. He says, somehow you are connected to me in a way that I want to speak some truth to you. And so I think the warning here is for us as believers, how we relate to our brothers and sisters and cousins in the faith much more so than it is about nations relating to each other. So I, I don't think it's about national isolationism. I think it's more about Christian denominationalism. That would be an appropriate application. Here's a lesson I would pull out of it. Obadiah is a cautionary tale about people who follow God, distancing themselves from their cousins in the faith. I think that's what it's about. What Edom did, I mean, you know, it's still happening all the time these days. When we pridefully act like, hey, our spiritual perspective, it's really the true one, right? We elevate ourselves above those expressions of Christianity that we think are dumb or misguided. Um, sadly, there's a lot of rooting against one another in the church, isn't there? And I think what we see in the Edomites is this pride of heart that says, ah, I'm rooting against my spiritual cousin. I'm going to laugh when something bad happens to them. And I know we don't like physically attack each other on the battlefield anymore, but if you've ever ventured onto the battlefield of Twitter, there's a lot of attacking going on, right? It's the same spirit. It's rooted in pride. It masquerades as being, well, I'm just a passionate defender of the truth. I'm just standing for what's right as if God's truth needs our defense. I think if Obadiah was writing today, I think he would be condemning this attitude that assumes, well, we're the only ones who get it. We've got it figured out. The first church I worked at was, uh, or first church I became a pastor at was a Southern Baptist church. Um, and so I am an ordained Southern Baptist pastor 
doesn't have as many benefits as you might think. Um, this, Pulpit Rock is not Southern Baptist, but that is like my background, and so I'm ordained as a Southern Baptist. One of the few benefits of being an ordained Southern Baptist pastor is you get to tell the jokes and not look like you're picking on Southern Baptists because I'm one of them, right? So I get to tell the jokes. My favorite Southern Baptist joke is about this guy who dies and he goes to heaven and he meets Jesus and Jesus is like, well, let me show you around. You're new here. Let me show you heaven. And he shows him heaven and it's like glorious beyond words, can't even, just glorious, right? But at some point in the tour, they walk by this part of heaven and it's got a giant wall. And he kind of listens, there's like nothing, like it's total silence on the other side of the wall, which is unique for heaven. There's not a lot of walls and there's not a lot of silence, I would suspect. Um, and so he says, hey, Jesus, what's the deal with this wall? And Jesus says, shh, you got to be quiet in this part of heaven. On the other side of that wall, that's where we put all the Southern Baptists. They think they're the only ones up here. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. denominationalism is the idea that our little slice of the kingdom is the only one that gets it, right? So our slice of understanding of God is ultimately the right one. We are the real people of God. And it is this over-spiritualized expression of pride in our hearts. If you want a visual representation of this, here is a comic What I love about this comic is you see on the whiteboard there is the, the chart of the, the singular movement of Jesus that has split into the myriad of expressions that we have today. And I think in honesty, we would all have to say none of us are the singular movement of Jesus of how it started. We're all variations on this theme, right? And the guy circles one and says, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. I think that's what Obadiah would caution us about. I think the lesson is this. If we are the people of God, we give up the right to pridefully think we are the only ones who have it figured out. Hopefully because we know the almighty God and realize he's bigger than us. If we are the people of God, we give up the right to root against people that we disagree with or don't like because we understand grace. That's really what Edom was doing. They're rooting against their spiritual cousins, and when they fell, they said, good, they deserve it, finally. And God said, hey, that sort of pride will never be okay with me. So maybe a really good application question for us out of Obadiah would be this. Who are our spiritual cousins? And have we allowed ourselves to indulge some pride in our hearts towards them? You know, I thought about, the, in the text, he uses the phrase brothers, right? So I thought about the, the, using the brother-sister analogy, but I kind of like the fact that Jacob and Esau were, cousin, or were brothers, so their descendants would be cousins, uh, because it gives us a new layer of understanding here, right? Like all of us, we have extended families, and in every extended family, there are some weird cousins, right? And if you're sitting there saying, I don't have any weird cousins in my extended family, then... I'm just kidding. I'm sure it's not you. I'm sure they don't think that about you. I'm sure it's not. But, you know, extended families. Like, we all have people in our extended family that we would say, listen, if we weren't related, I'm not sure we would hang out that much. Right? We all have that. God's family has the same thing. It does. 
even at Pope Rock. I mean, we try to be loving to everybody. We try to respect everybody. But I mean, there are some spiritual traditions, some Christian traditions that we struggle with deeply, that we trip over. And that's okay, because you know what? Plenty of people struggle with us. Right? Plenty of people say things about pulpit rock and the way we approach things. Like, oh, they're the weird ones. Did you hear about that pulpit rock? It's weird. They're always doing weird stuff. I hear they're letting women preach. Weird. You know, they, it's okay that they say stuff about us like that. And it's okay that we look at other churches and say, hey, I think they're missing something in this area. It's not wrong to see the differences. And it's not wrong to have good-hearted disagreement and to hold your convictions. But the point of this book is about pride in our hearts that creeps in in those moments. In our hearts, we should never elevate ourselves over our weird cousins. That's what this is about. That sort of pride is a huge problem with God. We have to realize this, that the alternative is this. It is possible to hold a conviction and an opinion and not elevate yourself above those with whom you disagree. Not only is it possible, I would say, gosh, as the people of Jesus covered by his grace, it is imperative that we get that one right. Because Obadiah reveals God does not appreciate our petty rivalries with each other. Practically, I'd say here's maybe one just piece of advice for all of us, myself included. Uh, We can avoid that prideful place just by practicing some solid biblical interpretation. And what I don't mean by that is we just need to like study a lot and make sure that all of our answers about the Bible are correct. What I do mean by that is when we read a verse and we're tempted to think, man, this is so good for those people, we need to stop ourselves. We need to realize it is almost always better biblical interpretation to aim it at ourselves instead of those people. Almost always. I would say maybe always. It's really easy, I think, especially when you're reading through something like the prophets where there's so much like intense language about people to read it and think, man, I, I could think of 10 people who need to hear that. But if we're reading the Bible and it's primarily making us angry at others, that is evidence of a pride in our heart that God really wants to deal with. Reading the Bible to find ammunition for other people, that's one of the ways we misuse Scripture. It's one of the ways we weaponize Scripture. We all are guilty of it. Uh, It needs to pierce our hearts first before we start swinging it around aimed at other people. And I think what that means for all of us is that when we come across stuff like the Minor Prophets, we we need to apply it to us. We need to apply it to the church before we ever think about taking it out to the non-Christian world and applying it to people who aren't even trying to listen to God. I love kind of what we're doing here at Pope Rock. Like, I just love the approach to spirituality that's embodied by by this community. Uh, But it is really important for us in that, that we see ourselves rightly in the kingdom of God. We cannot let ourselves elevate ourselves above others. We always say this at Pulver Rock, we don't have a vision, we have a kingdom. It's not even our kingdom, it's God's kingdom. We're just trying to play one role in God's kingdom. I love what we do here, but we need to understand we're just one small slice of the kingdom pie. Like we are not the true believers who finally got it right. That's not what we are. Right? We're trying to be faithful to Scripture, but we have to acknowledge there's a lot of other people also trying to be faithful to Scripture who have come to very different conclusions than we have, and that's okay. What we need to avoid is the pride 
that takes hold. And we're just trying to play our small role in his enormous kingdom and hold our convictions with the humility that accounts for our humanness and our sinfulness and our brokenness. You know the thing that's more dangerous than being wrong? Like if you're wrong, you just someone tell you and you're like, oh, and then you change your beliefs and then you're right. But something that's more dangerous than being wrong, uh, it's allowing ourselves to feel prideful about what we believe. Elevating ourselves above those with whom we disagree. That is toxic to our souls in a way that being wrong is not. Right? That's what the Edomites were doing. That's the spirit of Edom. And the warning to them is this. Edom is all about their thing. They're all about their thing. That's revealed uh, by how they treated their cousins. God says, hey, I kind of wanted you to be about my thing. I kind of wanted you to be about my kingdom. So for us at Pulpit Rock, let's be gentle. Let's be humble with our spiritual cousins. And instead of building our own thing, let's just focus on participating in his. That's probably the best I can come up with out of Obadiah. Let's pray. God, uh, we are thankful to be invited into your thing. We're thankful that you speak to us, that you lead us, that you've given us things to be passionate about and to have strong convictions on. But God, I pray that you would help us to know the difference between being passionate and feeling conviction and being prideful and distancing ourselves from those who we disagree with. God, we know we're covered by your grace. Will you help us to hold what we believe with humility? And will you help us to stay focused on the thing that you're doing, not the things we've discovered? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand up with us in worship?